0: Verse twenty-five. Now the great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, his own mother, his own wife, his own children, his own brothers and sisters, yes, even his own wife, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all those who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was unable to finish. Oh, how silly. To not be my disciple. Let's pray before we begin. Gracious heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for this opportunity, this moment to gather together as a community of believers, as the the community of of faith, the body of Christ, to open your word, to worship you in song and look at your word, to know you, to to grow in our relationship with you, to disciple ourselves together in the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that you cast me aside, that you speak through me, through your word, Lord. Lord, we ask these things in your son's precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So before we begin, let me share a story with you for just a moment. In March of 1933, when the Nazi party took over in Germany and established Adolf Hitler as the German nation's king, the, the leader, the Fuhrer, as they called him, Many Germans fled the country in order to avoid imprisonment, persecution, and certain death. This included, most notably, the Jews, the ethnic Jews, for obvious reasons, but also Christians who stood against both the Nazi takeover, but also German Christians, or German churches, both Protestant and Roman Catholic, who supported Nazism and Adolf Hitler. And among those who fled from this imprisonment, persecution, certain death, was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, after Bonhoeffer fled to to the United States, he spent a few years here in the United States in uh, theology schools and seminaries, growing in his relationship with Christ, uh, discipling himself himself with, with other believers, and after... Years of hearing the atrocities and persecutions of Christianity in Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer felt God calling him to go back to his homeland, to stand against Hitler's reign of evil and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Bonhoeffer, he wasn't foolish. He wasn't naive. He knew full well the risks of what he would be doing. He counted the cost and was well aware of leaving the safety and security of the United States to go back to worn, torn Nazi Germany could be the end of his life. But nonetheless, with a deep conviction as a disciple of Jesus Christ and a heart to obey the Lord, Bonhoeffer went back to his homeland, to Nazi Germany, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not submitting to the Nazi regime of evil, which eventually led to his arrest by the Nazi government. And then after spending a few years in a Nazi concentration camp, he was ultimately sentenced to death for his faithful obedience, for his faith in Jesus Christ. See, this morning we're going to see that the cost of discipleship is great But more than that, we're also going to find that the reward of our discipleship is so much greater than the cost. So as we turn to Luke chapter 14, looking through verses 25 through 33 this morning, we are going to find that the cost of discipleship is great. But just for a moment, let's let's put this on pause and let me give you a definition of what it means to be a disciple. What is the definition of discipleship? A disciple. The definition of a disciple is one who is a follower of a teacher, a leader, a philosopher, an idea, a word, a worldview. But you can put that aside. And you can write this down in your notes this morning that here is a simple truth for you this morning. Everyone is a disciple of something or someone. Everybody is a disciple. See, a disciple devotes the majority of their action, focus, thought, time into knowing, studying, growing in familiarity with and a relationship either with something or someone. Here's a good example. If you are a disciple of the sport of baseball, if you absolutely love every nook and cranny of baseball, this sport, you will submerge yourself into all the facets of that pertain to this sport. From the fundamentals of how it's played, either through defense and offense, all the way down to the statistics of every player, of every team, of every year, of every decade. And what's the goal? The goal is to either be the best baseball player that ever lived in the history of the world, or at least be the most knowledgeable person about the game of baseball. Now, baseball is trivial, but still, a disciple is completely devoted to whatever, or whoever, is the priority of the heart. And we'll get back to that in just a second. Before we go any further, let's address the context of what's going on in Luke chapter 14. We're just diving into the deep end, into the gospel of Luke. A lot of things have happened in the past in, in the gospel of Luke, and a lot of awesome, incredible things are going to go on in the future. So let's just put this in a, a scene, a setting, if you will, to explain what's going on. So in Luke chapter 14, we find Jesus on his way to the cross. See, Jesus, he knows that he's going to suffer. He is going to die on a cross for our sins. And he tells the disciples this three times, and naturally it goes over their head three times. And while Jesus and his disciples are on the their way to Jerusalem, a flock of people. People are flooding all from, from Samaria, Judea, Galilee, the surrounding areas. People are flocking all around the world to see Jesus. And if you look at Luke chapter 1 all the way to 13, we find these miracles that Jesus has performed. He has raised people from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He is, he is healed sick. And the poor and the dying, he turned water into wine. He he fed a multitude of people with very little resources. And these people are are flocking to Jesus because of the excitement to see the supernatural. They simply just wanted to see the Jesus circus show. And at this moment in Luke chapter fourteen, Jesus. Turns around as he's walking his way to the cross, to Jerusalem. Jesus turns around and he challenges the crowd of people about true discipleship and what it costs to follow him. So just for a moment, we've got three points of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And we find the first point in verse 26. Where a true disciple of Jesus Christ puts the master as the priority of their hearts. Jesus turns around and he addresses the crowd. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, yes, even his own wife cannot be my disciple. Now, let me give you a little bit of clarification. See, Jesus is not demanding us to hate our brothers and sisters, if you have a sibling, as tempting as that is, Jesus is not condoning, he's not uh, approving of, you know, for you to hate your little sister or older brother, Jesus is not telling us to hate our mothers and fathers, even though they get onto you when you don't clean up your room, as tempting as that is, Jesus is not approving of that, Jesus is not approving us of hating our wives, even though they tell us that our room is dirty and we need to do the dishes and do the laundry, as tempting as that is, but I'm not speaking from personal experience. But here Jesus uses strong language to emphasize and describe the complete devotion to their relationship with Jesus, their relationship with God, and then everyone and everything falls into place afterwards. See, Jesus says that those who do not have God at the top of their priority list are not genuine Christians, are not genuine disciples. See, most of the crowd were only following Jesus because they wanted to see him perform a miraculous act. See, they had no interest in a relationship with God They had no interest in turning away from sin. They had no interest in in seeking God and faithful obedience. They just wanted to get what they wanted out of God. And see, that isn't how a relationship works, does it? You see, the more that you you follow, the more that you learn, the more that you seek God, is the more our relationship with the Lord grows and matures. Matthew chapter 22 verse 37 says, "Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. See a true disciple of Jesus Christ lays everything before him. Every nook, every cranny of the heart is submitted in faith and obedience to Jesus. See we can find this in a comparison to the Pharisees in the New Testament. What did the Pharisees love to do? Well, they loved to follow the law. And they loved, well, let's let's dig a little deeper than that. They wanted to look like they followed the law. See, they uh, they were totally devoted into following the law. They would stack laws on top of God's laws like Legos. In order for them to look righteous, to look holy, to look pure, or more so, they wanted people looking at me, Pharisee, and saying, wow. Look how awesome he is. Look how much he prays. Look how much of the law he follows. See, the Pharisees, they had no interest in a relationship with the Lord. They had a relationship with his law, but they could have cared less about growing a relationship with God. And in turn, they rejected a relationship with the one who would die for the sins of the world. The priorities are out of whack. True disciples of Jesus Christ put the master as the priority of their hearts. Then Jesus transitions to the, sec- uh, the second point in verse 27. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And the second point is this true disciples of Jesus Christ are willing to do as the master does. See, Jesus says that a genuine disciple of Christ will bear their own cross. Now, what does that mean? What is to bear a cross? Furthermore, what what does a cross even mean? Well, if you take yourself back a thousand years or so when the Roman Empire was around, a cross meant certain death. You're going to die. And if you are handed a cross... That means you are going to die upon that cross. You're going to carry this piece of wood up to a hill and have nails drilled into your hands, drilled into your feet, and you are going to die on that cross. And we see Jesus, he says, you need to bear your own cross and follow me if you are a true disciple. Now just earlier we talked about how Jesus, he's on his way to Jerusalem, He is on his way to be crucified. He's about to be humiliated, spit on, beaten, flogged, whipped, lashed, punched, kicked, stabbed, and ultimately put to death. And here's a note to take home this morning is that Jesus never asks his disciples to do something that he hasn't already done himself. Jesus doesn't send out disciples and go, I don't know because I've never done this before. Jesus always has told his disciples to go where he has already gone to. That's why he says, come follow me because I am leading the path. He's on his way to the cross. He calls true disciples of Christ to bear their own cross and to follow him. And Jesus says this over and over and over to his disciples that being a genuine disciple of Christ will cost you humiliation, suffering, persecution. He says, the world will hate you because it first hated me. We find in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, Paul says that the spirit himself bears witness With our spirit that we are children of God and children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs to Christ. That's just a profound statement in itself. Provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. James chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Being a disciple of Christ is going to cost you because you have to bear a cross and follow Him. One of the greatest examples of, of true discipleship in the New Testament, we find it in uh, just watching the 12 disciples of Christ following Jesus for three years. And the best way to describe the disciples is prior to the resurrection, prior to Jesus rising from the grave, is this. The disciples are a bunch of cowards. They're a bunch of sissy pantses. Because when things hit the fan and when Jesus is arrested, they scatter. They disappear like a puff of smoke. They're gone. Jesus tells Peter that you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter goes, no, Jesus, no, I'm, I'm actually going, I will die for you. I will give my life for you. And what does Peter do? He denies Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. Prior to the resurrection, these disciples are a bunch of cowards, are a bunch of sissy pantses. that then you find after the resurrection of Christ. We find the disciples who are in Jerusalem, and they are arrested for sharing their faith, for sharing the good news of the gospel. And when they turn around and address those who arrest them after being beaten, after being spit on, after being mocked, after being scorned, after being persecuted, they turn to them and say, we cannot but speak of what we've heard and what we have seen. And we must obey God rather than men. See, true disciples of Jesus Christ are willing to do as the master does. Last point. Jesus again transitions to another example. And he says that true disciples must have a complete commitment to the master. We find this in verse 28 through 33. Jesus gives us two uh, examples of total devotion. And we find the first example is a builder who evaluates all of his resources, all of his his stuff, in order to build a tower. Now, I don't know much about building things aside from, like, Legos. But I know, like, if you're going to build a tower, whatever size, it's going to cost you just a little bit. It's going to take some wood. It's going to take some stone. It's going to take some tools. It's going to take material to build a tower, to build a house, to build a bridge, to build whatever. It takes uh, time, and it takes money, and it takes resources into building a tower. And Jesus uses this example of a man who, who... gathers up all of his resources to build a tower, and then he he transitions to, how foolish is this person if he lays down the foundation, he gets the foundation all fine and pretty and smooth and level, but he doesn't have enough stuff to finish the tower. And then people will look at the builder and mock him and say, how foolish of you to not even count the cost of building this tower. And the next Jesus transitions to a king, a king who has an army of 10,000 men. And this, this king evaluates his resources before going into battle against a stronger army of 20,000. See, a true disciple of Christ is to evaluate the cost. And the cost is denying self and putting on Christ. Christ. See, Jesus gives a warning in these verses. Jesus says that he does not accept lukewarm, half-hearted, superficial disciples. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, or excuse me, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus spits those who are lukewarm out of his mouth, putrid, disgusting. He would rather people be cold or hot they're just lukewarm, half hearted, superficial. And there's another point that, that runs underneath a current, uh, like a current in these verses is that, and you can write this down, this is for free, but Jesus finishes what he starts. Despite being broken, despite being marred, despite having scars of just living life, when you reach your hand out and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, he doesn't take you by the hand and go, mm, you know, I'm only going to get you about 50% of the way. I'm only going to get you about 70%, maybe 80%. You're going to have to figure this out on your own from there on out. Jesus finishes what he starts. Jesus doesn't just lay down the foundation. He is the foundation, and he also builds the tower until it's completed. Jesus doesn't accept half-hearted, lukewarm, superficial, He demands complete and total commitment to the master. And we find Jesus saying this over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, where where Jesus speaks to his disciples saying, A new commitment I give to you, that you love both I and one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to also love me and one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for me and for one another. Total and complete commitment. Jesus again says in John 14, verses 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So from start to finish, true disciples give Jesus complete and total commitment over their lives. See, before Bonhoeffer died, before he was executed by the Nazi government in 1945, months before World War II in Europe was over, months before Germany surrendered to the Allies, Bonhoeffer, before he was executed, he coined two phrases to define true discipleship against superficial disciples. And the first is cheap grace. And the second is cost of grace. What is the definition of cheap grace? Bonhoeffer defines cheap grace as wanting God's forgiveness without the requirement of repentance. Without the requirement of turning away from sin. Without the requirement of faithful obedience to God through his word. And a refusal to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not know him. Simply put, cheap grace is a grace without discipleship. It's a grace without the cross. It's a grace without Jesus Christ. And simply put, it is not grace at all. It doesn't exist. Yet on the other hand, a costly grace. Bonhoeffer defines costly grace as the call of Jesus Christ in which disciples leave everything and follow Him. Simply put, costly grace is is the gospel which costs all to lose their life in order to find true life in Jesus Christ and it's costly because it costs God his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins that is the difference between cheap grace and costly grace so this morning before we dismiss I've got a couple of Questions to ask of you. Where are your priorities this morning? Is it in something? Is it in someone? Is it in Jesus? Is it in the lunch that you're about to eat in a couple of hours? Because boy, that's pressing on my side. What are your priorities today? And this is speaking from unbeliever to the most mature of Christians. What are your priorities? Are they in the Lord, or are they in something superficial? As you ask yourself, what are your priorities, ask yourself, what do you spend the most time doing, thinking about, wanting to do? What are your priorities this morning? And then second off, are you willing to bear